All right, if you've got a Bible this morning, Revelation chapter 4 is where we're going to be, and I appreciate your uh, being here this morning. This morning we're actually in part two of a series called Behold the Throne, and last week we began Revelation chapter 4, uh, where, where John the Apostle has been caught up into heaven, specifically the third heaven as we studied last week, and, and as he's entered into the very throne room of God, we, we see that John is recording for us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit things that he is seeing, things that he is, is experiencing, things that he's hearing. He is literally in the very throne room of God. Last week we talked about that that throne is located in the third heaven, and, and I hope you didn't walk out of here thinking that, man, what kind of crazy cult is that that believes in, in three heavens? We actually looked at the fact that God is a God of threes. And because God is a God of threes, all of creation is patterned after God himself. And we went through Genesis chapter 1, and we saw how God divided out the heavens in chapter 1. And we saw that God confirmed that division from, from Genesis 1 through Psalm 148. And even through the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, how that the, the first heaven would be our atmosphere where the birds fly and the, and the planes fly and and, uh, you know, Walt just got back from France, and he, he took a plane, and he flew in the first heaven. And, and thank God, God brought him back to us safely. And so that's something that we're understanding and familiar with. But, but then also, the second heaven is where the sun and the moon and the stars reside. And we saw that from the book of Genesis, that that's where God hung those lights uh, in, the, in the firmament of heaven. And then we saw that the third heaven is the very throne room of God. It's the throne of God. It's where God dwells. It's above outer space, and we drew all of that out last week. And so if you're here this morning, you're saying, man, what in the world is he talking about? You need to go back and listen to last week's message because we don't have the time to, to lay all that out. But just know that John is caught up to heaven, and what he's seeing is the very throne of God. He's in the third heaven, and, and there was an invitation for him to come that, that said, come up hither. And, and last week we looked at that phrase, come up hither. It's only found three times in the Word of God, and, and we looked at the significance of that. John is a picture or a type of the rapture of the church in type or picture. There's a lot more doctrinal things, I think, that are connected with that. But, but here is a, here's a man that's caught up to be before the throne of God. And we saw last week, according to Revelation 4 and verse 2, that that throne was exclusive. Because when John got to the third heaven and he beheld this throne, it was set in heaven, and the Bible says that one sat on the throne. And, and we, we ended last week's message uh, challenging all of us that, that, that truly there's only one throne and one person that sits on the throne. And, and co-regency is satanic. And we looked at Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, and we saw that the devil himself desired to elevate his throne also into the very throne room of God. He, he was interested in co-regency. He wasn't necessarily interested in kicking God off the throne. That's impossible. But, but he wanted God to allow him to have a throne as well in heaven. And, and the truth is, many times we do that, right? We, we want God's authority in our life as long as we have authority in our life. And, and the issue is submission and who's going to be on the throne. And the truth is, there's only one throne. And there's only one that can rule and reign. And the minute that we decide to rule and reign our life, we have effectively removed Christ from his rightful position in our life. And so, and so all of that to say this morning, we're going to get back in Revelation chapter 4. Let's read verses 1 to 8 this morning. We'll pray and we'll get into your notes this morning. So, so John writes and he says in Revelation 4 and verse 1, After this I looked and behold a door was opened in heaven. 
And the first voice which I heard was, it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show these things that must, must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne, in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf, and the third beast had the face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him. And they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Let's pray this morning. Father, we need you, Lord, I pray God, as we open your word, Father, we come humbly to it. God, you've given us your word that's perfect, it's perfectly preserved. God, it's it's what we need in our life today to know you and to walk with you. And Lord, I pray as we we examine the scriptures, God, as we we look at what John looked at and what he heard and what he saw, that that God, through your word, your Holy Spirit would do a work in our heart and life. God, we, we need you to help us understand. Father, we need your Holy Spirit to correct and convict and encourage and challenge and rebuke whatever needs to happen in our life, God. We, we, we want to have a meeting with you today. And so, Lord, would you bless your word? God, get your messenger out of the way. Father, I'm weak and a man of stammering lips. Father, I pray that, that nothing that I do, God, would get in the way of the glory of your word and help us to hear from you today. We love you and we ask it in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. So as, as we get into Revelation chapter 4, uh, again, we're, we're talking about the throne of God. And so this first point is, is kind of the basis for everything we'll talk about today. And so this first point is this in your notes. I want to talk about the centrality of God's throne in Revelation chapter 4. And as we read that passage in Revelation chapter 4, everything that is described in Revelation 4 is described specifically in its relationship back to the throne of God. And what's interesting is that the throne of God is the central point of reference for everything that's mentioned. As a matter of fact, in verse 3, it tells us that there's someone on the throne. We talked about that last week. We'll talk about it more today. Verse 3 also says, round about the throne. Verse 4, round about the throne. Verse 5, out of the throne. Verse 6, before the throne. In the midst of the throne and round about the throne. Do do you understand and see that the point of reference and the focus of everything in chapter 4 is the throne? And so here's the key in your notes. The throne of God is the central focus of all of heaven. Listen, it is the nucleus in which everything else centers upon. And, And because everything is described in its relation to the throne of God, everything in heaven points back to the throne. And, and, and obviously, as we talk about some of these things, man, there's created beings, there's, there's a lot of things we're going to talk about. Because the throne is the central focus of heaven, can I just tell you, the throne is the central focus of all creation. 
Everything points to the throne. It's all about God's creation. It, we learned last week that God created the heaven and the earth. And by the way, he created the heaven first, right? In the beginning, God created the, the heaven. And, and, so, and so even heaven itself is first because everything points to heaven. Everything points to the very throne of God. We saw last week in the book of Genesis that the Bible opens with heaven being created. And that heaven is the very throne of God. And so the Bible opens with a throne. And because the entire Bible is all about that throne, when you get to Revelation 22, it actually, in verses 1 to 3, and it's not on the screen, I don't, I don't think it's on the screen, but let me just read it to you. In the end of the book, at the end of Revelation, what, what the closing chapter tells us about is a throne. The Bible opens with a throne, it closes with a throne, and everything in every page between the beginning and the end is all about the throne. That's what it's all about. Now, I know we're all Laodicean Christians in the room, so we think the Bible is about us. And we think it's about our salvation and what God can do for us and how God can bless us. But listen, that's really irrelevant. It's a part of the story that the real focal point of all of it isn't us. And I know that's hard for Laodiceans to hear, but, but can I just tell you that the reality is it's about that throne. Revelation 22, 1 to 3, he says, He showed me a pure river of, water, of the water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And so even the last chapter of the Bible has emphasis on the throne of God. And here's why, and here's the key in your notes. It's because the theme of the Bible it's about a king and a kingdom. It's not about your salvation or your, your redemption. Listen, your redemption and salvation is important, and that's a part of the story. But man, the entirety of the Bible is about a king and a kingdom. It's about Christ's kingdom glory, where Jesus Christ is seated on his throne, in his glory, in his kingdom. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. You say, well, I don't agree with that. Well, you just need to read the Bible. And then you'll agree with it because it's biblical. And so, and so because all of heaven centers on a throne, and because all of creation centers on a throne, and because the entire Bible centers on a throne, here's the takeaway for us. We need to have a focus that's on the throne. And when we focus on the throne personally, the focus of our life will be right. Because if you're looking at anything else in your Christian walk except the throne, you're looking at the wrong thing. You're missing the point. And listen, as Christians, we have to ask ourselves the question, man, is the throne of God, is the glory of God, is the authority of God and his word in my life, is, is him getting the praise and honor and glory he deserves? Is that the focus of my life or not? Is the throne of God the center and nucleus from which everything and everyone in my life and my universe revolves around? Is it the point of reference through which I view my worship? You see, we'll talk about that in a second, but you can't have right worship unless you have a right perspective of God's throne. It is, is God's throne the nucleus or the focal point of my service to God? And, and again, if you have a wrong perspective of God's throne, your service won't be right. 
Man, is God's throne the focal point of my walk with Christ? But see, but see you know, we, we live in a time of Christianity, and I know it because I live here, and I know it because I struggle with it. Man, when the throne of God isn't the central point of our life, we are. Uh, I am. And, and all we have to do is examine things like our worship and our time in the Word of God and the, and the emphasis of our prayers and why we serve. And it doesn't take long to realize that, man, it's really not even about God and His glory. It's about me and my ego, me and my religious fix, me and my works to somehow justify myself before God. Does that make sense? Are you guys okay with that? So, so, so even if you're not, it's true. So the point is, when we don't focus on the throne, the focus of our life is not going to be right. And God tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, that the love of Christ constraineth us, because thus we judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And he that died for all, that they which live, that's us, should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. That's who we ought to live for. We ought to live for the Lord because he's the one that saved us from our sin. It's all about him and his throne and his glory. And man, that, that's a hard pill to swallow for Laodicean Christians that love themselves. But it is biblical. And, and John is ushered into the very throne room of God. And everything that's described in heaven above is described in a way that connects it back to the throne. Why? Because that's the point. The throne is the point. And so we see the centrality of the throne. And the number two is John begins to unfold and, and unpack what's happening in heaven under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. Number two, we see that he begins to explain some different stones and different colors connected with God's throne. And I want you to go back to verse 3 because it says, He that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardin stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto emerald. And so I want you to understand this morning that God isn't monochrome. In other words, God is, 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 is everything. He's every color. He's everything. He's not black and white as many of us like things to be. And God doesn't waste words. God wants you to know something specific about the one that's sitting on the throne. Number one, he's like a jasper and a sard in stone. And you say, well, what's the point? What's the point of that? Well, we have to compare Scripture with Scripture. And if we go back to Ezekiel 28, we actually find that in the Old Testament, the high priest for the nation of Israel had a garment. And on that garment, there was an ephod, a breastplate of judgment that he wore, and in that garment, there were 12 stones that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. Let me give it to you. Exodus 28, verse 15. Again, Moses giving instruction concerning this. He says, Thou shalt make the breastplate of judgment with cunning work after the work of the ephod. Thou shalt make it of gold, of blue, and of purple, and of scarlet, fine twine linen. Thou shalt make it four square. It shall be doubled. A span thereof is, shall be the length thereof. A span shall be the breadth. And thou shalt set in it stones, check this out, even four rows of stones, the first row shall be a sardius or sardin stone, a topaz, and a carbuncle. So that's the first row of three. This shall be the first row. And the second row shall be an emerald, 
and a sapphire and a diamond, and the third row, a, a ligure, and, or ligure, an agate and amethysts, and the fourth row, a beryl and an onyx and a jasper. And they shall be set in gold in their enclosings, and the stones shall be with the names of the children of Israel, according to their names, like the engraving of a signet. Everyone with his name, they shall be according to 12 tribes. And you say, man, what in the world does that matter, Jay? What? Why are we back in Exodus when we're talking about Revelation 4, and, and the person on the throne is being likened to a jasper and a sardine stone? I'm glad you asked. Here's what we have to understand as we go back to the Old Testament high priest. The very first stone that's mentioned is the sardius or the sardine stone. That's the first stone that was found on the high priest's garment, that was placed in the high priest's garment. That same word sardin or sardius also has the same root as Sardis, the city of Sardis. And so possibly that we know from our study previously in Revelation 2 and 3 that Sardis is, is the word literally means red ones. And so maybe this stone is red like a ruby. Here's what I know about Sardin. Because it's the first stone on the high priest's garment, it represents the first tribe. And the first tribe is the tribe of Reuben. And Reuben's name means, behold, a son. And so, and so as John is looking at the throne of God, he sees God Almighty sitting on the throne. And the way he describes him, he is as a jasper and a sardine stone. And, and, and again, as we study we find that Sardin is the first stone on the high priest's garment. And then we study that Jasper, according to Ezekiel 28, is actually the last stone on the high priest's garment. And, and those of you that maybe have studied the Bible a little bit, you know what God just did right there. As John is looking at that throne and he says, man, I, I'm seeing God and he's as a jasper, he's as a sardin stone. What he's saying is, I see the first and the last sitting on the throne. Uh, there, there's a lot here, man. Uh, jasper, because it's the last stone, it represents the tribe of Benjamin, the last son, the last of the tribe of Israel. And his name means the son of my right hand. And so as John is looking in heaven, at the throne, he sees Jasper and Sardin. He sees, behold, a son, the son of my right hand. And by the way, these stones are pointing us to the person of no other than Jesus Christ himself. And the reason why we know that is because Christ is the first and the last. He is the great high priest, right? Revelation chapter 1 and verse 11, Christ himself says, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. Revelation 1 and verse 17, it says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying, fear not, for I am first and last. And so John sees these colors, man, in Revelation chapter 4, and he's blown away, and he makes the connection that there's something special about the way he looks. These colors represent something. They mean something. They point to something. And what they point to is the very person of Christ. Then he talks about this rainbow, right? And, and he says that there's this rainbow round about the throne in sight, like unto an emerald. And, and again, the next color that he describes is this 
emerald rainbow that sits around the throne. And listen, that, that rainbow is a full circle. It's a complete circle. And, and I, didn't have, I didn't have the wherewithal to print it or, or to put it on the slide. But, but man, if you look at a, a rainbow from an airplane, you don't see like the half of a rainbow that we see from the Earth's perspective. If you fly through an area and there's a, a rainbow outside of a plane window, what you're literally going to see is a full circle because it's complete, it's perfect. It has no beginning, it has no ending. And that's the way God is. And, and, and so John sees this rainbow round about the throne and it's a complete circle and it's a perfect circle. And he says it's in sight like unto emerald. And, and you say, well, why does it look like emerald? And again, if we went back to Ezekiel 28 and we ran the reference and we, we looked at those stones and then we looked at the correlation between those stones and the 12 tribes of Israel, we'll find that, that emerald represents the tribe of Judah. And, and, and the name Judah means praise. And, and who is the only one that's worthy of praise? The one on the throne. And, and, and so, man, this throne is, is, is in the, in, in the kind of in the midst, if you will. This, this rainbow is round about the throne. It's, under, it's, under, it's like unto emerald, and emerald points us back to the tribe of Judah. It means praise. And, and all of this points us back to the person of Christ. And so, and so here's the takeaway, because we want to make sure we make application for each of us in our life. Here's the takeaway. When our focus is on the throne... Can I tell you, our understanding of Christ will be right. And, and let me just give you the counterpoint to that. If you don't have a right focus of the throne, who you think Christ is won't be right. It'll be a Christ that you've made up in your head. It'll be a Christ that is according to Christian culture. It would be a Christ according to your preference and desire. But when your focus is on the throne of God, you will see that Christ is the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end, and He alone is worthy of all praise. The problem for us many times is that when we talk about our understanding of Christ, it's not according to the Word of God. It's a Christ that we've made up in our mind. It's a Christ that's religious. Pick your denomination. It doesn't matter. It's a Christ that I'm comfortable with. And, and I don't see our comfort having anything to do with any of it. Uh, it's about Him. And so our understanding of Christ stems directly from our perspective of the throne. And man, some of us struggle this morning because we think we have a right relationship with Christ, but the truth is the Christ that we're serving is the Christ that we've made up in our head. It's the Christ of Christian culture. It's the Christ of denominationalism. And none of those things are true. The Word of God is true. The throne of God is true, and Christ is true. And, and I just want to help us this morning understand that, man, listen, when you see the throne, like John saw the throne, you say, how can I see it? You can see it through the pages of this book because God's given us his word. You can go to the throne anytime you want, and when you see Christ for who he is, well, man, you'll have a proper understanding. you have a proper understanding of him. Okay, number three. 
Let's go quick. Is this helping you this morning? Number three, man, look, look the, the character is before the throne. Okay, so, so there's about four hours of sermon material in this sermon, and, and we're not going to make it. So number three, the character is before the, the throne. Pick it up in verse four. Okay, so John continues, and he says, Round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And listen, there is no shortage of commentary and question and debate on who are these 24 elders. You know, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I, got, I got some Bible to maybe throw at you, but, but the truth is their personality is the subject of much debate. And this morning, you will not get clarity on that. So I'll go ahead and disappoint you on the front end. And before you raise your hand and tell me who for sure it is, please, please, please uh, spare yourself. <laughs> Man, listen, uh, there, there's no shortage of discussion on who these 24 elders are, right? Uh, common uh, perception of this is that they're the 12 apostles and possibly the 12 heads of the nation of Israel. And if that is true, then the apostle John is actually looking at himself. If t- the 12 apostles and the 12 heads of the tribes of Israel are the 24 elders, then it's kind of the multivalence thing where John is actually here but there. And he sees himself there, but he's here. And that's kind of weird, right? It's like quantum leap or something, man. It's like, okay, as long as his, his, per, his, his person in the third heaven doesn't see him standing there. You know, it's kind of one of those things, right? It, it, it messes it up. I don't know, man. Okay, so, so that is a common teaching. Uh, you know, I don't know. There, there's, there's maybe scriptural evidence for that. Some people think they're angels. The reason I don't think they're angels is because in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9, it says that these 12, excuse me, these 24 elders sing a song, and the song has to do with their redemption from, by Christ's blood. And, and there are no angels that are being redeemed by Christ's blood. Angels certainly look into God's grace and mercy as it relates to humanity, uh, but but they're not they're not asking Christ to forgive them of their sin through the cross of Calvary. Some people believe that those twenty four elders represent all of the body of Christ, and, and there's certainly a devotional application that you can take to that. But it does tell us that there are twenty four of those elders, and every time they show up in the Bible, God's word very specifically says four and twenty, four and twenty, four and twenty, four and twenty. And here's what I know that that, that the word elder in the Bible is used several different ways. It certainly is used for a title of age, as in elder or younger, but it's also used as a title of prominence or position. For instance, in Exodus 3 and verse 16, and none of this is on the screen. You know why? Because I'm not going to land on a definite conclusion. But I'm just going to give you some things to write down. you got a backside of those notes. Write down the references. Exodus 3 and verse 16. It says, Go and gather the elders of Israel together. These were the heads of Israel, the leaders of Israel. And so it's used in a a term of title, of prominence, or position. In the New Testament, we know that elders are pastors in the local church context. Acts 20 and verse 17. Paul, when he was uh, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and he called the elders of the church. 1 Timothy 5 and verse 17. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor. So we know it's a title of of, of, of position in the local church, in the New Testament church. Peter was an elder, according to 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 1. So he was an apostle, but he's also an elder. John himself, John the apostle, was an apostle, but he's also 
He calls himself the elder in 2 John, verse 1. And so who are they? Well, I don't know. The truth is, I don't know. I really don't know. Because, because there's so many conflicting things. As, as you say it's one person, and then as soon as you say that, then you show another verse that, that proves that that can't be who it is, right? It, it gets very interesting to me. I would have you write down 1 Chronicles 24, verses 1 to 19. And it is very interesting that in the Old Testament, as David sits on the throne of his kingdom, he reestablishes the order of the priesthood. And the reason he had to do that was because the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, died. They offered strange fire before God and and they died, and, and, and so the lineage of the priesthood had to be you know, somewhat reestablished. And what's interesting is that as David does that, there are actually 24 orders of the priesthood in 1 Chronicles 24. Then when you get to 1 Chronicles 25, David separated families or men for the service of singing with harps and with psalteries and cymbals. And there were 24 wards of people that were set apart for the worship of God. And so I'm just saying all that to say, maybe there's a connection back to 1 Chronicles 24. Because in Revelation chapter 4, Christ, who is, you know, sitting on the throne of David, so to speak, man is establishing order and righteousness, and and maybe he needs priests. So, yeah, I don't know, man. You study that out. Here's here's what I know. Uh, It's okay to say I don't know. And I'll tell you I don't know. And so uh, their personality is, uh, it could be a number of people. Their possessions are very interesting. The Bible says they're clothed in white raiment. As you study white raiment in the Bible, Christ is clothed in white raiment when he was transfigured. The angel of the Lord is clothed in white raiment after the resurrection. Overcomers are promised white raiment in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, and verse 18. Two different churches that we looked at, one of those which is Laodicea. And so it's very interesting that these men are clothed in white raiment. They have crowns of gold. Crowns are for ruling and for reigning. They have harps, which is really weird, man. Again, if you're not, if you're not a Bible nerd, this stuff's boring you. But if you're a Bible nerd, it's very interesting. But they all have harps. They have golden vials full of odors, which the Bible says are the prayers of the saints. They're singing a new song in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9. So, you know, they can't be Baptists. I I just want to make sure you're still awake. Where were you on the drums, man? I needed you. Right right there. Okay. Whatever. They sung a new song, man. And, And that song says, Thou art worthy to take the book and open the seals, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood and out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And by the way, let me just say something about the song that they're singing. The song that they're singing is about the blood, just for the record. There ought to be something to sing about when it comes to the blood of Christ. Uh, that ought to be, that ought to be a, a focal point of, of some things that we can sing about because it's the blood of Christ that cleanses us from our sin, right? First John chapter 1 and verse 7 It says, if we walk in the light, he's in the light. We have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. Romans 5 and verse 9 says, much more than being justified by his blood, we should be saved from wrath 
through him. Ephesians 1 and verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even forgiveness of sins. Man, the blood is, is certainly worth singing about. And they possessed a new song. And then, and I think this last point is really the takeaway point, man. They had a very specific posture. As a matter of fact, when you read about these four and 20 elders, whoever they are, and again, I can't wait for you to all come tell me who they are as soon as we get done. Well, I know who they are. Here's who they are. Okay. Here's what I know. Every time they're mentioned in the word of God, they all have the same posture. Check this out. Revelation 4, verse 10, the four and 20 elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worshiped him. So, so they have a position of worship that's consistent. Revelation 5, verses 8 and 9, it says, The elders fell down before the Lamb. And verse 9 says they sang a new song because God had redeemed them. Revelation 5 and verse 14, The four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him. Chapter 11, verse 16, They fell upon their faces and they worshipped God. Revelation 19 and verse 4, the 24 elders and the four beasts fell down and worshiped God that sat on the throne saying, Amen and Hallelujah. So I don't know who they are exactly. I know they have some unique possessions, but here's what I do know. I can learn from their posture. And the biblical posture of worship is prostrate before the Lord. It's prostrate before the Lord. I mean, it's a position of surrender and submission before God Almighty. It's a surrender and submission to the throne of God. And listen, these 24 elders position themselves face down and worship God. And so that's what worship is. It's an attitude of reverence that leads to the action of obedience. And I said earlier, if we don't have a right perspective of the throne, even our worship will be messed up. And can I just tell you, listen, I'm not saying we all have to come lay on our face, but man, in our heart, as we sing to God, as we hear God's word in our heart and mind, we ought to position ourselves in that third heaven before the throne of God. And we ought to position ourselves in our heart and mind prostrate before the Lord Almighty because we're surrendered to him. And so here's the takeaway. When your focus on, on the throne is right, your position of worship is going to be right. And, and for some of us, we need to do inventory here because, because we don't have a heart of surrender and submission. We don't fall on our face. We actually stiffen our neck. Friends, that's not worship. I don't care what you sing. I don't care how much Bible you can quote. I don't don't care how many classes you've taught, how many people you've won to Christ, how many people you've discipled. It doesn't matter. Because surrender and submission alone is worship. And that is what leads to action of obedience. And without a proper perspective of the throne, your worship will never be what it needs to be. I think we miss it in worship, man. And worship's not just instruments and singing, for the record. Worship is falling down before the Lord on your face. 
I remember one time we taught on worship back at my home church. This was years and years ago, and, and we taught on worship, and we did a whole weekend conference on worship. And then we looked at every reference of worship in the Bible, and as you study that thing, especially in the Old Testament, man, every time worship is mentioned, somebody's fallen on their face before God Almighty. They fell on their face, and they worshiped. And so the position is a position of surrender and submission and reverence to Almighty God. And listen, even at the end of a weekend focused on worship, we ask the question, what is the position of worship according to the Word of God? And people would say, well, it's raising hands. <laughs> Let me kick you in the knee and help you. <laughs> oh, you're halfway there. <laughs> now you got it. <laughs> like, I would never do that. Well, in front of you, I wouldn't, but... My job is just to help people, <laughs> so if you need help, just come on up. We'll give you a good kick in the shin. Anyways, do you, do you see how the position of worship has to be right? Man, you can, you can have a religion and not have a right heart of worship. Okay, we're running out of time, so let's get through. Number four, as John continues to describe what he's seeing and hearing, number four, he, he shows us and here he, he describes for us the clamor coming out of the throne. If you go back to verse 5, it says, Out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. There were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And, and man, there's a lot to talk about. For the record, we've already talked about those seven spirits of God in previous messages. And so this morning, if you say, man, what exactly is that? You need to dig through the archives and, and find uh, where we taught on that out of Revelation chapter 1 and, and other places. So uh, that's already been covered. So for the sake of time this morning, we're going to focus on the lightnings and the thunders and the voices that came out of the throne of God. And when you begin studying that in the scripture, what you find is in Exodus 19, a very similar thing happened with Moses on the mount with the children of Israel. In Exodus 19 and verse 16, it says, It came to pass on the third day of the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mounts and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud so that all the people in the and the camp trembled. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp, here it is, to do what? To meet with God. So these lightnings, these thunders, these voices were all a part of an attempt to meet with God and for God to meet with them. And they stood at the nether part of the mount, and Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mount quaked greatly, and the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder. Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice. And the Lord God came down upon Mount Sinai on top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount, and Moses went up. And so here's the key in your notes. Listen, lightnings, thunders, voices are always connected to God's presence and God's voice in the Bible. When you read about these thunderings and lightnings and voices, it's all about God's presence and it's all about the power of his voice. 2 Samuel 22 and verse 14 says, The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. I mean, God's voice is a strong voice, man. And, and as you study again through the rest of Scripture, you see that those thunderings and lightnings are specifically associated with God's judgment during the tribulation period. But let me show you something interesting in Exodus chapter 20. 
Because John is hearing and seeing these lightnings and thunderings and the voice. And in Exodus, Moses and the nation of Israel are seeing the thunderings and lightnings and hearing the voice. And it's because God's presence was there and he wanted to meet with his people. Exodus 20, verse 18. And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And the people saw it and they removed and stood afar off. And they said to Moses... Speak thou with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, for God has come to prove you, that you may, that, that, and that his fear may be before your faces, that you sin not. The people stood afar off, and Moses drew near unto the thick darkness where God was. And, and, and let me just make this point. Look, Israel had an opportunity to hear God's word personally. And they didn't want to. Actually, what they said was, hey, Moses, you just tell us, you tell us what God said. We don't want God to speak to us. We'll just let God speak to you. And then you just tell us what he said. And can I just tell you that, that again, in type and picture, there is an interesting parallel there. Because if you're not careful as a child of God, as a Christian, listen, you would rather hear a man speak to you instead of God himself speaking to you. You know how I know that? Because a lot of Christians don't spend any time in God's Word outside of what God gives them through a pastor or a teacher on Sunday morning. And they're happy to have a Moses tell them what God said. They just don't have any desire to hear it for themselves. Man, you know, you know why that happens? Because you've got a wrong perspective of the throne. You've got a wrong perspective of the throne. Your focus is not on the throne. So here's the takeaway. When your focus is on the throne, like John's focus was on the throne, your ability to hear God's voice will be right. Because God can speak to you personally. God wants a relationship with you personally. He's given you His Holy Spirit and His Word. And do you understand you can come to Him at any time, day or night, and hear from God Himself? You can hear from God himself. And yes, it will seem like thunderings and lightnings and a loud voice. But God just wants a relationship with you. And he wants to prove you. And he wants you to be holy. And he wants you to walk with him. He wants to give you his word so that you can walk with him. And man, in Israel's life, they preferred to have someone else give them what God said. And again, I understand all the implications of, of what's happening in Exodus 20, but it is interesting. The Bible says the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near to thick darkness. And the same thing happens today. There are Christians that will stand afar off, and there are some that want to hear what God says. And what determines the difference is your perspective of the throne. Okay, and the last thing, we're done. Number five. The creatures in the midst of the throne, verses 6 to 9, and, and we need to, need to kind of finish on this, but, but let me just show you this. This is, this is amazing. Again, you're going to leave with more questions than answers this morning. You're welcome. Verse 6, so, so John, I came here to get all my questions answered. Well, you know, we're king of disappointment around here, so you're welcome. It's my spiritual gift. Look at verse 6. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. In the midst of the throne and round about the throne, the four beasts were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. 
And the first beast was like a lion, the second beast was like a calf, the third beast had the face of a man, the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. I mean, we're getting ready for fall festival, and you're probably going to see some stuff like that rolling through (laughs) the parking lot on Saturday afternoon. I mean, it's like, what is going on right here, right? What is going on? And the four beasts, each of the four beasts, each of them had six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty which was and is and is to come. And, and you've got to ask the question, man, what are these four beasts? And again, when God uses the word like or the word as, he's trying to teach us something. Whatever that first beast was, he was like a lion. The second beast was like a calf. Okay, and, and so God uses plain English. We can understand it. It is unique, and as we study this, these four beasts in the Scripture, again, conflicting views on this, It's very interesting to me. There's only one other beast in the Bible that has six wings, as this beast has six wings. And in Isaiah chapter 6, I believe Isaiah saw these same beasts before the throne of God. Look at Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, and and what God's going to give us is a description of what God calls the seraphim. Look at verse 1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw also the Lord sitting upon what? And so listen, Isaiah saw the throne. John saw it. Paul saw it, right? I mean, I mean, a lot of people saw it. And here's what he says. It was high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple, and above it stood the seraphim. Each one had how many wings? Six wings. With twain or with two he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, and with twain or with two he did fly, And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. (laughs) Isaiah's like, what? (laughs) What is going on, man? I mean, the the room is shaking. There's these beasts. They're crying out God's holiness. There's smoke. Here's Isaiah's response, verse 5. Hey, it's cool to be here. Let me take a picture. That's not what he said. You see, Isaiah knew where he was. And because he knew where he was, he knew who he was. Verse 5. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And again, when you have a right view of the throne, man, you have a right view of Christ. You have a right position of worship. You have the ability to hear and receive God's word. And as we're going to see in just a second, you truly understand God's holiness. I I mean, Isaiah was undone. So verse 6, Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand which it had taken off the tongs from the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched my lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. You see, I believe these beasts that John is seeing in Revelation chapter 4 are nothing, nothing other than the seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6. You say, how do you, how do you make that connection? Well, both have six wings. And in both instances, what they're saying is that God is holy, holy, holy. And there's some other creatures we could talk about, the cherubim and Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 28 with, with Lucifer. There's a lot of things we could talk about with the cherubim. 
But I think it's interesting that within the pages of the Bible, there's a direct reference back to Isaiah 6, and the same type of creature are saying the same thing in the very throne room of God. And what they're crying out day and night is holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Listen, that is the attribute that God in His Word has magnified three times. And, and, and you, need to, you need to pay attention right here because God is a lot of things. God is light, according to 1 John chapter 1. But nowhere in the Bible does it say that God is light, light, light. And God is love, according to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8. But nowhere in the Bible do you find God's creation saying back to God that God is love, love, love. But what we find is the attribute of God that's magnified three times, threefold in both Isaiah 6 and Revelation chapter 4 is God's holiness. He's holy, holy, holy. And can I tell you, that's the attribute that's most magnified about God. And that is the attribute that we are least comfortable with. Anybody hear me? Man, we love to talk about God's love, and He is love. And we love to talk about God as light, and He is light. But the thing that He is threefold is holy. It's the attribute that all of His creation, all of the created beings that are in His presence proclaim without ceasing day and night. So, so here's the takeaway, right? When our focus is on the throne, like John's was and like Isaiah's was, man, the reality of God's holiness will be right in our life. Are you guys okay with that statement? You see, we, we many times miss how holy God really is because we have a skewed perspective of his throne. And when we see his throne the way Isaiah saw it, and when we see the throne the way John saw it, and I know you're done, don't, don't pack up on me just yet. Listen, I know your blanks are full, but we're not done. When you see the throne the way Isaiah saw it and John saw it, you can't help but understand the reality of God's holiness. It moved Isaiah to say, woe is me. When he saw God's holiness, he saw his sin very clear. And I think for us, man, the, the issue many times in our relationship with God is that because our view of the throne is skewed or blurred or out of focus, we tend to have no problem living in an unholy manner. And I'm speaking for me. Man, when my perspective of the throne is right, God's holiness comes into clarity. And then so does my sin. So here's the question. And we're going to stop this morning because we're out of time. And you didn't pack a lunch, I noticed. So, uh, man, John's experience at the throne left him undone. Isaiah's experience at the throne left him undone. 
And so here's the, here's the first place where we have to begin as we, as we begin the invitation this morning is, listen, is the throne of God the focus of my life? Is it truly the focus of my life? Because it is the focal point of everything else in creation. It's the focal point of heaven. It's, a, it's the focal point of all creation. It's the focal point of worship. And it ought to be the focal point of my life. And if it's not, will you make it the focal point today? Will you have a clear understanding of the person of Christ according to the word of God? He is the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. He's worthy of praise. Listen, do you have a proper position of praise in your life? Are you really prostrate before the Lord in your heart and mind? Do you have the ability to hear God's voice clearly in your life? Or would you prefer to have a man like Moses give it to you? All of those questions have everything to do with the position of God's throne in your life. Do you have a reality of God's true holiness? And by the way, if you do, it'll drive you to be holy because he is holy. First Peter chapter 1, verse 15, Peter writes and he says, But as he which hath called you is holy, and he is, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. And we, we struggle in that because we don't have a clear perspective of God's throne. This morning, we, we've seen it clearly. So let's make sure that we have a heart position before the throne of God and respond rightly. I'm going to ask Cody to come. We're going to bow our heads and pray this morning. As we pray, consider what it is that God would have you do this morning in your walk with him. Father, we need you this morning, God. Thank you for your word as, as we have seen and experienced the throne in a, very, in a very quick way, God, just in these few minutes. God, like John, we, we've been brought into your presence. God, we've seen things that are, that are amazing, that things that we don't even understand. God, I confess I don't understand them. There's things that, that still I, I'm, I'm trying to learn about and, and, and fully understand. But God, what I do know are, are the things that are in heaven above, God, are all pointed to you. They're, they're pointed to Christ's throne. And because of that, God, I pray that we learn from that, 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 that the focal point of our life can become the throne of God. And God, for every one of us here today, maybe we need to do business with you. The truth is we may, we may have... We may have skewed the view of your throne in our life. And because of that, we don't hear your word. We don't live a life of worship. We're not holy. Maybe this morning you brought us to, to remembrance of just who you are. So Father, I pray for our church. Give us what we need. With your heads bowed and eyes closed.